1: WTBN Pinellas Park, W262CP Bayonet
0: Point. Brought to you by Moss Nissan. Simply versions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Odyssey. The following program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse. Sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. Mm -hmm.
1: Listen, there are whole books about the names of, of God, because each of these names reveal some aspect of his character and his dealings with mankind, but not everything, not all is contained in one name. That's because God is so infinite and so glorious and so majestic, there isn't one name that can fully capture his radiant glory. And so God has revealed himself in the Bible through a host of names that reflect who he is.
2: The prophet Isaiah made a wonderful prediction about the names of the little baby that would be born on the day we celebrate as Christmas. In chapter 9 of his book in the Old Testament, verse 6, he wrote these familiar words. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In the next three broadcasts, Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel will open the scriptures for us and look at these names contained in Isaiah's prophecy. They will give you a greater appreciation of the Christmas season and the reasons for our celebrations. Welcome to Verse by Verse, a daily program opening the scriptures and examining what God has said in his word and how we are to live by those truths. Pastor Steve has been ministering at Lakeside since 1981, and verse-by-verse is an outgrowth of his teaching ministry. We're glad to have you join in our classes today, and we hope you will be enriched in your daily walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. At the end of the program, I will tell you how you can listen again to this message and get a CD of all three broadcasts. Now with our study for today, here is Pastor Steve.
1: How important is a person's name? Well, that's what Shakespeare's Juliet wanted to know when she asked the question, what's in a name? But because Juliet's Romeo belonged to a rival family with a hated last name, she felt that a name really wasn't very important. And so she said that which we call a rose by any other word would smell just as sweet. You know what, Juliet was wrong. Good literature, but wrong. Names of flowers may not be very significant, but what we call people and the names we give to people, that's very important because our names can affect and they can influence the way we live. One psychologist did a study of 15,000 teenagers and found that those with odd or embarrassing names We're in trouble with the law four times as much as others. And some of you will remember the old Johnny Cash song called The Boy Named Sue. And the gist of the song was that Sue was named that by his dad in order to force him to become a tough guy. A tough guy just to survive life because of the abuse that he'd have to take with a name like Sue. Now, in our modern world, a person's name is often based on how the name sounds or if it's in vogue or it's perhaps even a unique family name passed on from one generation to the other. Jewish people often name their children after a deceased relative in order to honor the the memory of that relative. But scripture reveals that in the ancient world, names had nothing to do with contemporary trends or honoring relatives. In biblical times, names were were given to individuals to either express a certain quality about that person or with the hope and the desire that the bearer of that name would live up to the special quality. So, for example, we read in the Old Testament that God named the first man Adam or Adam because Adam means earth. And he was made from the dust of the earth. So that's how God gave that name. That's why God gave the name to Adam. God changed Abram's name, as you'll recall, to Abraham, which means father of a multitude because that's what Abraham was to become. It would reflect what he was, the father of of many. And Abraham named his son Isaac, Yitzhak which literally means laughter because his birth brought such joy and laughter to he and Sarah. On the other hand, Rachel named her son Ben-Oni, Ben-Oni, which means son of my sorrow, because his birth brought about her death. She died giving birth to him. But no one should have to go through life with a name that constantly reminds you that your birth killed your mother. And so Jacob, his dad, very wisely and very mercifully changed his name to Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. In the New Testament, when Jesus wanted one of his vacillating disciples to understand what he would become, he said to Simon, your name will be Peter, which means rock solid, rock or stone. Now, if God is concerned that the names of his creatures convey their true character, then how much more concerned is he that his name express his attributes and his character qualities? But what is God's name? We speak of the name of, of God. Shortly after I became a Christian, I was invited to attend a religious meeting on the campus of the University of South Florida. That's where I came to know Christ. And so I was invited to this meeting. Now, it wasn't a a church service. It was a small gathering of people who had come together to discuss religious issues. And being a new believer with very limited Bible knowledge and absolutely no awareness that there were false teachers false religious teachers, and then I needed to really be discerning. I just assumed that this meeting would be about Jesus and the Bible, but I assumed incorrectly. I was wrong. I don't remember what that discussion was about that day, but I can tell you it was not about God and the Bible. In fact, not one time during the entire meeting was, was God's name even mentioned. And though everyone else felt free to participate and talk and enter into the discussion, as I said, it was a small gathering. I just kept quiet. I really didn't know what to say. I was just sort of stunned. And I suppose that my silence was rather conspicuous because at the end of the meeting, the person who led the discussion looked at me and said, well, there's one person here we haven't heard from. And I must have thought, "Uh uh-oh. But anyway, and so this person said to me, so what do you think about what was said here today? So I said, well, I was disappointed that no one mentioned God's name. And in response to my statement, the one leading the discussion said, well, I don't think that it's really important what we call God. But you know what? God says it's important what we call him. God says it's very important what we call him because his name reveals who he is. In fact, it is so important to God that he's revealed himself in the Bible through a plurality, a multitude of names that describe him. And why has he revealed himself through more than one name? Listen closely, because Scripture makes it clear that one name alone cannot adequately describe the infinite God. That's why we read, of a number of names in the Old Testament. For example, we read of God's name as Elohim or Jehovah or Adonai, El Shaddai, Jehovah Shalom, and on and on goes. That's just a sampling of a few of the names. There are many names. Listen, there are whole books about the names of, of God because each of these names reveal some aspect of his character and his dealings with mankind, but not everything. Not all is contained in one name. That's because God is so infinite and so glorious and so majestic, there isn't one name that can fully capture his radiant glory. And so God has revealed himself in the Bible through a host of names that reflect who he is. Here's how one Bible teacher explained this phenomenon. He said, like the facets of a magnificent diamond that reflect the sun's rays at noonday, these divine names reflect the brilliance and fire of the divine glory. Now at Christmas time, there is a passage of scripture that we often refer to that presents four of the names of God. I'm referring to Isaiah chapter nine, verses six and seven. For a child will be born to us Now, the gist, folks, of these two verses is that 700 years, catch that, 700 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the prophet Isaiah predicted his coming as Israel's king and Messiah. But I want you to notice the language that Isaiah, the prophet, used to describe the uniqueness of this coming this coming king, the Messiah. He said that he would be a, a child would be born to us, which is a reference to Christ's humanity. In other words, he'd be born just like any other human, as an infant, a baby, a child. Now, at this point, Isaiah doesn't tell us anything more about Christ's birth, only that he would be born as a child. But we know from other scriptures uh, that the reason Messiah became a man was so that he could and would die as a man on the cross bearing the guilt of his people. Later in chapter 53 of the book of Isaiah, the prophet will explain the purpose of Messiah's death. He'll tell us that he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. Our transgressions were laid on him. But in addition to being a child, Isaiah reveals that This won't be an ordinary human child. For the child born to us, he says, will also be a son who will be given to us. In other words, the same one who will be born as a child is also the eternal son given by God. See, in this one sentence, Isaiah indicates that the coming Messiah will be both human and divine. And the New Testament later clarifies this by telling us that Jesus Christ is, eternally existed before his birth in Bethlehem because he is the infinite son of God, the second person of the Trinity. I read to you earlier, John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, that's Christ, and the word was with God and the word was God. And the word, the eternal word became flesh and lived among us. So Isaiah predicted that the eternal God would enter this world as a child, as an infant a baby. That's why we celebrate Christmas. That's what Christmas is about. Christ coming into this world, the God-man. But notice what else Isaiah said about this child. He said, the child would grow up, and one day, in the words of Isaiah, the government will rest on his shoulders. Now, what does that mean? This is just an ancient way of saying that this child will someday rule the world. In other words, Isaiah's prediction of Christ looks beyond, way beyond his birth to a time in the future when he'll reign over an earthly kingdom that will include all of the kingdoms and governments of this world. We studied this in Psalm 2, where we read this, verses 8 and 9 where the father says to the son, ask of me and I'll surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. That's what this is talking about. He'll rule the world. In Daniel chapter two, verse 44, we read that his kingdom will be unlike any other kingdom because his kingdom will never end. Now this hasn't happened yet. It will, but it hasn't happened yet. It will take place when Jesus returns following the seven-year tribulation period that leads right up to his second coming. And at that time, when Christ comes back, he will establish his literal 1,000-year reign on earth. That's what the book of Revelation tells us. Revelation 20 tells us, and and God is very clear to give a number there, that he will reign out of the city of Jerusalem on this planet for 1,000 years. Now, watch this it's with this future kingdom in mind that Isaiah mentions four names associated with the Messiah. And what he means by this is that in the kingdom age, this 1,000 year messianic reign of Christ on earth, the Messiah will be called by these four names because each of these names communicates what Christ is like and the character of his earthly rain is 1000 year reign on earth but having said that i want you to know though this prophecy specifically refers to the future reign of christ on earth these names about the lord are just as relevant for us today as they will be in the kingdom age. Because as believers in Christ, if you are a believer in Christ, you have entered into an aspect of the kingdom, a spiritual aspect of the kingdom, because Christ reigns over you as king. In one sense, you have kingdom living now. In the sense that Christ reigns over you. And so the government of your life does already rest upon his shoulders. So all these names about Jesus can become real in our present experience and relationship with him. So this morning, I want us to take a closer look at these four names of Christ. You may be somewhat familiar with them, but perhaps you've never studied them in context and thought through all the implications and ramifications of these names. So we want to look at these four names of Christ and begin to understand more about the one whose birth we celebrate at Christmas. And the first name that Isaiah mentions that Christ will be called is Wonderful Counselor. First thing we're told about Jesus is that he is a counselor. What a great compliment. He's a counselor in the sense that he helps deal with our problems. He does deal with our problems. He gives us solutions to the tough issues that we're facing. That's what a counselor does. He gives us direction in our lives. He tells us how to live so as to honor God, that is essentially the function of a godly counselor. But notice that Isaiah doesn't simply call Jesus a counselor. He's not just another counselor in a long list of advisors. Isaiah calls him a wonderful counselor. Now, you could translate this Hebrew word wonderful as exceptional or distinguished. This particular word is used a number of different ways in the Old Testament, but its basic meaning is unique, distinct, different. That is to say that Jesus Christ is a special counselor. He is different from any other counselor that you have ever met or ever hope to meet. There's none better. Now, why is Jesus such a unique and wonderful counselor, different from all other counselors? Because his counsel, note this, is always right never wrong, always right, always perfect, always on target. His wisdom is impeccable. See, unlike other counselors, Christ knows everything about everything. He knows everything about you. He knows everything about me. He knows us intimately. He, he sees our hearts. He sees our motives. Nobody else sees that, why we do what we do. But he does. He knows your thoughts. He knows what you're thinking right now. He knows what you'll be thinking in a few minutes. He knows your true and your often secret desires. He knows all your real needs as opposed to your felt needs, what you think you need. There's no better passage of Scripture that tells us of Christ's knowledge of us than Psalm 139. Listen to what David said. He said, O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me, meaning he knows all about us. You know when I sit down, when I rise up. God knows when you're going to bed tonight. He knows what time you're going to get up. He knows when you're going to sit in the day, when you're going to get up. You understand my thoughts from afar. God understands everything that we're thinking at every moment. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, Lord, you know it all. You know what I'm about to say, even before I know what I'm going to say. You have enclosed me, behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge, he says, it's too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain to it. Later, he'll say that you formed me in my mother's womb. You have ordained when I'd be born, when I would die. Oh, and God knows everything about it. See, one major reason why Jesus is such a wonderful counselor, different from all other counselors, is that he alone knows us better than anyone because he, he alone knows our hearts. Nobody knows our hearts. Nobody except him. He alone knows and understands what's really going on inside of us, what we're like, what drives us. As I said, what, what motivates us? Let me show you something very interesting. If you keep your place in Isaiah 9 and go to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, we read something fascinating. Jesus is in Jerusalem He started his ministry a little bit earlier. He comes up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And we read something interesting. Chapter two, verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. So keep this in mind. Let's don't turn from there, but he's in Jerusalem. People are seeing his signs. They're getting attracted to him. You might think, oh, good. He's getting committed followers. These are his people. They're following him, but not so. Look at verse 24. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them for he knew all men. He knew that they were only attracted to him for the sensational, only the signs. They were impressed with that. That's all. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. He understood about their shallowness. He understood that they were just looking at him as a miracle worker. And that's all. That's it. Now, notice, we're not finished. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a as a teacher. Now, he, he meant well, but he was wrong. Jesus wasn't a teacher who had come from God. He was God who came to teach. But okay, he was trying to be complimentary. Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So he's just kind of laying it on thick here, giving Jesus a compliment. And then all of a sudden, Jesus breaks in in verse 3 and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, where did this come from? Why did Jesus start speaking about being born again? Nicodemus didn't bring it up. He's giving Christ compliments. We see your signs. We're impressed. We know that you are a teacher who's come from God. And Jesus said, Nicodemus, you have to be born again. Why did he say that? Because Jesus knew what was on Nicodemus's heart. Nicodemus was a religious teacher in fact jesus said you are later he says in this chapter you're the teacher in israel and you don't understand these things you are the teacher you are preeminent prominent teacher you don't understand this but he knew that what was on nicodemus's heart was i'm a teacher in israel and yet i don't know how to be right with god i don't know how to make sure that my sins are forgiven i'm troubled about this i've done all these works all these good things but i don't know how to be in a right relationship with God. And that's why Jesus, knowing his heart, cuts away at everything, gets right to the heart of the matter and says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. That's really what you need. That's what's on your heart. You need to be born again. Then he explains to him what it means to be born again. Read the same thing in the story of the rich young ruler. It's found in the other gospel accounts in in Luke and Mark and Matthew. A, A rich young man, some type of ruler comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life, to gain eternal life? And Jesus first tells him, well, have you kept the law? Knowing that he had not kept the law, because no one perfectly keeps the law. But this man, being self-righteous, said, yes, all these things I've kept from my youth. And then Jesus gets to the heart of the matter, having just met this man, but knowing what's going on in his heart, shows him that he has not kept the law. He said to to this rich young ruler, sell all that you have, take the proceeds, give it to the poor, and then come, follow me. Now, why would he say that? Because this man loved his wealth. This man was covetous. This man did not keep the last commandment, which says thou shalt not covet anything. This man loved his money. And the Bible says, though sad, he walked away from Jesus. Now, Jesus said all this because he knew what was in this guy's heart. Nobody else did, but he did.
2: And God knows what's in our hearts, too, my listening friend. It is so easy for us to get our eyes set on material blessings and pursue them. They can easily shut out the needs of people all around us so that we miss the blessings of giving to others. May the Lord Jesus help us to focus on the needs of others during this Christmas season and not on our own wants and desires. And may he help us to have a lifestyle of giving all year long. That will bring a joy and happiness like nothing else can do. If you would like to listen to this message again, go to our webpage versebyverseradio.org and stream or download the message. You can also order a CD of the entire message by calling us at 727-239-0306. Leave your name and a phone number, and someone will call you back during weekday office hours. That phone number again is 727-239-0306. Our website, once again, is versebyverseradio.org.